Well, the uh, great Baptist preacher, we're allowed to quote Baptists even though we're Anglicans, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, so excuse the um, gender-exclusive language, once said, of all the things in the world that stink in the nostrils of men or women, hypocrisy is the worst. Of all the things in the world that stink in the nostrils of men, hypocrisy is the worst. And we all hate hypocrisy, don't we? We all dislike it when people present themselves one way, but actually, inside, behind that, something else is going on. And it's interesting because even if we agree with the values that someone is betraying themselves to, we're still outraged when we see hypocrisy. So say, for example, now, uh, if you do or don't eat meat, no value judgments are being made here. This is just an example, okay? Let's say, for example, you do eat meat. Your friend is a vegan, and this particular friend is always telling you you should also be a vegan. And then one day, you're walking along down Shepherd's Bush Green, and you happen to look to your right, and in Greg's, you see your friend eating a sausage roll. And you're outraged because they're always telling you you should be a vegan. That's the right choice. Now, you don't disagree with their values. You eat meat, but it's the fact that they've presented themselves one way and tried to persuade you to their point of view and then gone against it. But they, they, they say they live by one set of values, but then they betray those words with their actual life. But it's not just you, the meat eater, that is outraged. Their vegan friends are outraged as well because they too feel betrayed by the sheer hypocrisy. You might say, as the saying goes, they do not practice what they preach. It's a very dangerous statement for preachers to remind you of. But the more loudly someone proclaims a certain set of values, well, then the greater the hypocrisy when they are caught out not practicing those values. So the CEO on the board of a conservation charity who's discovered actually to be out there shooting big game for sport. Or one might say the environmentalist campaigners who fly everywhere on private jets, mentioning no names. But perhaps worst of all, of course, in the church. Pastors caught with prostitutes. Vicars caught in affairs. Priests who turn out to be paedophiles. Because the very values they are literally preaching from the pulpit, they are failing to preach with their lives. The very essence of who they claim to be, leaders, teachers, protectors, they are failing to be. And actions, as we all know, speak louder than words. But uh, all of you this morning as well are putting yourself at risk by being in church on a Sunday because lots of people say that about Christians, about churchgoers, don't they? People who go to church, just a bunch of hypocrites. They go to church on a Sunday, but then the rest of the time, they're just like everybody else. They go to church on Sunday, they say a bunch of stuff, but it makes no difference to the way that they live. So for most of us here, for most of you, not pastors, vicars, or priests, just Christians or churchgoers, 
And if you're not a regular here, if you're just visiting, or you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, then welcome. The strongest words that Paul is giving us this morning, and Paul is giving us some strong words, are not directed at those just dropping in, those dropping by. Paul's strong words are for Christian believers, for people who are saying to the world outside, I am a Christian, who are presenting themselves that way. And again, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, then fantastic. This is an opportunity to look in and say, okay, what is this Christian life? What do they believe? What is the call that God puts on the life of someone who wants to follow Christ, who wants to present themselves to the world as a Christian? So please, everyone, listen in. So we've said hypocrisy is at its worst when when someone is betraying what is at the heart, at the essence of their professed values. Well, what are the values of Christians? What are the core values of Christianity? Paul tells us in verse 3, and it's a fascinating little verse because you may have come across Christians who are terribly worried about what God's will is for their life. You know, should I live here? Should I live there? Should I do this job? Should I do that job? Should I marry this person? Should I marry that person? But are we as concerned about what the Lord says we should be concerned about? Because right here in this verse, I'm going to tell you God's will for your life. So if you're one of those people with those questions, listen up. This is God's will for your life right now. Chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That is God's will for your life. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified, not a word we often use every day. Um, probably easier to think of holy. Sanctified means to be made holy. And holiness is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, that is what God cares about most of all, that we are holy. So a very quick, I did a quick search on Bible Gateway for holy and sort of, you know, God seeking for us to be holy. About 60 references. I won't go through them all. You'll be reassured to hear. Here's a, a, a selection. Exodus chapter 19 just as God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and he says, the reason I've done this is so you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A sense in which every believer is to be a priest. Someone who sits in that that gap between man and God, presenting the world to God, praying for the world, and presenting God to the world. Leviticus, uh, not too long after, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, and this one is picked up in the New Testament, be holy because I am holy, says God. To the Israelites then, to Christians now, be holy because I am holy, says God. And then picked up uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, God says again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So that's now Peter writing to Christian believers after Jesus has died and risen again. People who have put their trust in Christ, he says, you guys, you take on, you inherit that promise from Israel. You now are to be this royal priesthood, this holy nation. And he quotes exactly those words from Leviticus again. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. Well, I said we don't use the word sanctified very often. We don't use the word holy very often, to be fair, apart from in church. It's still a slightly churchy, codified word. What does holy mean? And it's quite hard to define. One thing it means is sort of 
set apart for, or kind of separated from a particular group for another purpose. Uh, so the uh, student pastor many years ago when I was a student, uh, he always used to use this illustration. So he said, you know, you're making a cup of tea um, and you've got someone who wants to put sugar in their tea. But of course, if you stir your tea and then you take your wet brown liquid stained teaspoon and put it in the sugar, then you get that thing where the sugar goes brown and it goes all lumpy and that sort of thing. And so that is why in you know, certain households, uh, they will have a sugar spoon. And so, you know, let's say one of your friends is coming around and they start and they, and they're to, to go for the sugar with their wet dripping spoon and you say, stop, that's the sugar spoon. That's not the sugar spoon. Use the sugar spoon. Stop, use the sugar spoon. And you might say, the sugar spoon is holy to the sugar. The sugar spoon has been set apart for that particular purpose, to transport sugar from the bowl to your cup, but not back. If the sugar spoon touches the tea, it's then defiled. It's not holy anymore. And you don't want to put it back in the sugar. The sugar spoon is holy to the sugar. And there's something of a sense of that with what we are supposed to be like. Christians are supposed to be holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord. And there's a sense in which sin, things that we do that God has commanded us not to do, sin defiles, makes us unclean, like a dirty sugar spoon, except much worse. No longer holy as God is holy, which is what we've been called to do. Well, so what does it mean to be holy? Well, Paul gives us two things in this passage. Now, there are passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand, and this isn't one of them. But there are passages in the Bible that are very, very clear, but are difficult to live out. And this is one of those. So read with me again from chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God. As we said, the title this morning, we're thinking about how to please God. And we've titled this whole series, Authentic Christians. As we go through the book of Thessalonians, we see that Paul says to them again and again, guys, you're doing really well. So he says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Well done, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you are doing well. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So you're doing well, Paul says to the Thessalonians, but keep doing it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And we have two incredibly clear instructions here. Hard to live, but clear to understand. Christians should be sexually pure, and Christians should not be lazy. Christians should not be sexually immoral, and Christians should not be lazy. So sexual morality first. Actually, Anna, because you're closest, would you mind just grabbing me a glass of water? My voice is on the, on the edge. Thanks so much. Paul says this, verse 3. <coughs> it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now that can be more general, as I've said, with holiness, but here Paul has a specific instruction that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Not in passionate lust like those who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother 
or sister. Thank you so much. So Paul says it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, those of you who've been coming to St. Helens for a while, um, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether Steve kind of sits there and goes, let's give all the hard passages to Andrew. Um, because I had basically the equivalent passage to this in Ephesians chapter 5. And actually we had a slightly bigger, longer kind of time to focus on it there. So there's more on, there, more on it there if you wanted to look up on the website, Ephesians chapter 5, the first half. But here Paul says that you should avoid sexual immorality. So you may remember from there, that is the translation of the Greek word porneia. It doesn't take a lot of uh, nous to work out that porneia is the word from which we get pornography. And porneia literally just means any sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of life or long, one man, one woman, marriage. Easy to understand. If we are married, then most sexual activity is on the table. If we are not married, then no sexual activity is on the table. Very simple to understand. That is how broad porneia is. All sexual activity outside of marriage is not appropriate, Paul says, for the Christian. As I say, simple to understand, hard to live hard to live. I see a few smiles around the congregation. Because lots of us know, well firstly some of us know that we're not living this way right now and there's probably always, there's always a spectrum isn't it? Some of us know we're not living that way right now and we're okay with that. Some of us know we're not living that way right now and we feel guilty about it and we wish we were doing better. Some of us know that we're not living that way right now but we know the things that we've done in the past and they stay with us in our minds, on our consciences. And actually, that's all of us. There's no other category. There's no one here who's pure and perfect, who's never done anything wrong. There's no one here who can look at this passage and read these words, and in their own life, in their own way that they've behaved, say, I am pure, I am perfect, I am holy, I am sanctified. It is an impossibly high bar. The Lord Jesus said, if anyone so much as looks at someone else lustfully, then they have committed adultery with them in their heart and therefore are guilty. So that is all of us in one sense or another. But our response to our past failure shouldn't be, well, that's that then, over and done with, forget it. But rather, the Christian response is to deny ourselves, as the Lord Jesus calls us to do, to repent of our past failures and to commit to live differently going forward, to commit to a sanctified lifestyle, to commit to avoiding sexual immorality. One of the commentaries sort of said, you know, Paul is not giving wise advice or nice moral ideas here. He goes on in verse 6 to say this, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. So don't hate me uh, for being the messenger. Paul said that he warned and instructed the Thessalonians because it is Jesus who will punish. And 
it's no skin off my nose in many ways how anyone in this room chooses to live their life. I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind. But we will all of us answer to God on the last day for how we have lived our lives. Verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So if we read these words, and whatever our past may be, that can be forgiven. Whatever our past may be, that can be forgiven. But if we read these words now and choose not to obey them, then that is very serious. To read a command from God and say, I don't need to obey that. That is not an option for us. So sexual immorality, Paul says the Christian should avoid it, but he also says that we should work hard. And we see here this morning, we have a holiness, verses 3 to 8, and love. And I don't know if I would, if you would naturally, I wouldn't naturally think of working hard as an outworking of love for one another, but Paul seems to think that it is. Verse 9, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, again, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul says that it is our responsibility, each one of us, if we are able, if we are able to do so, if we have the physical capacity to work hard, whatever we're doing. And so that is old or young, whatever our life circumstances, is to work hard, to use our time, use our energy to serve God. And this is actually a great encouragement for all of us in the work that we do, particularly if you feel perhaps that your work is not very important. It is important in the eyes of God. How we do our work is the most important thing in the eyes of God. That God is pleased when we work well, when we work conscientiously. As he says there, make it your ambition not to necessarily to be a huge success in business or film or music or you know, be the greatest doctor or whatever it is that is your ambition, the greatest sportsman. Our ambition, Paul says, should be a quiet life. You should mind your own business Love that. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Now, if as we work hard and mind our own business, we progress, we're successful, fantastic. That's brilliant. God is in that blessing our hard work. But he is far more concerned about our attitude towards our work than the results of that work, whether or not we are successful. On the last day, he will care more about that than about our job title or how much we manage to achieve whether or not we were famous. Now, each of us in the room will have different challenges from that. For some of us, the challenge will be more on the first one. For some of us, the challenge will be more on the second one. And there'll be some, perhaps, where you feel that actually neither of those, sex or work, aren't actually areas where you're particularly challenged in your holiness, but you're aware of other areas of life where we aren't living for God. And so when we want to be for ourselves, if we are Christian believers, pursuing holiness in all areas of our lives. 
And again, the seriousness of this, remember back to chapter 2, where Paul says that the Thessalonians did so well because when they heard the word of God, they accepted it, not as the word of people, but as the word of God. If this was just my words, you would be absolutely, 100%, completely at liberty to ignore me because I have no claim whatsoever over your life. But if this is the word of God, as Paul tells us, then we want to take it very, very seriously. And note as well here, it's not grumpy God the Father, and then Jesus is our mate, and he's like, don't worry about Dad, he's a bit grumpy, I'll get you in. Paul says it is Jesus who will punish on the last day those of us who disregard God's commands. Jesus and the Father are one. What one says, both say. To be a Christian is to strive for holiness. To be a Christian is to seek after sanctification. To be a Christian is to pursue holiness. But as I said at the beginning as well, if you're someone here and you're not a Christian but you're thinking about it, then this is something to be weighed up. Jesus says a number of times in the Gospels to count the cost before we become a Christian. And so we'll want to say, is it worth it? <coughs> and of course we would want to say, as Christians, we want to say, yes, absolutely, it is worth it. Look back at chapter 1, uh, verses 9 and 10. Paul says of the Thessalonians, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The gospel is a gospel, the Christian message is a gospel of waiting. <coughs> the best is yet to come. There are many blessings of the Christian life now. As a Christian we can know our past forgiven, and we can know our future secure, and we can know in the present that we have a Father who loves us, but the greatest blessings are waiting for us when the Lord Jesus returns from heaven to take us home. And so, it is worth it. Well, as I've said, some passages difficult to understand, some passages difficult to live. And that is this one. And so as I close, I'm going to read the prayer that Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3, just before he gave these commands. And you'll note that he prays for a strengthening of our hearts so that we may be blameless and holy. Paul doesn't think this is easy. He knows it's not easy. All of you know it's not easy. I know it's not easy. I know what I've done in my past. But may God strengthen our hearts so that we may pursue this and so that daily we may continue to turn from sin and to trust in Christ who makes us blameless and holy in the sight of God. So let's pray this prayer as I read. Excuse me. Chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.